All right, good morning, everyone. Um, just um, maybe just a, 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 a word of encouragement to, to you guys. You see, there's a, with, with the current situation and circumstances that we're in, there's obviously uh, many people who are just unable to, to physically gather with us, and so that's why we've, we've done a lot of work to make sure our content is streamed online so that our families and our church friends and uh, everybody can, can uh, if, if, you know, isolate at home if they're still uh, staying focused on that and, and, uh, and still join in with us. Uh, but what that means then is for all of the moving parts for me- gathering on a Sunday still happen, uh, but now they're happening with... Uh, just a fraction of the amount of leadership and, and volunteers and, and family engagement that we, we normally have. Um, and so just when you see Taylor and Caitlin and Phil and the guys that, you, that, are, that are actually serving on Sundays, just make sure you, you, you tell them you appreciate their service, you appreciate them kind of stepping in and making sure that Sunday gatherings actually do happen. Um, because again, it's just, it's, we're at this weird place where everybody's having to do things a little bit different. Um, and it's just requiring a little bit of a different capacity out of everybody. So just wanted to kind of throw that out there. Um, and we are continuing our journey into this, uh, this connected thread of Scripture from the beginning to the very end. And we're, uh, we're, we're highlighting the moments where Jesus shows up in every single strand of Scripture. Uh, that it's not just when Jesus is born uh, in, the, in the beginning of the Gospels that we, we start to kind of get New Testament and, and, and see Jesus' life, but that this was part of God's plan. This was part of uh, what he was going to do in, in the world. Uh, long before uh, anything else happened, he, this was kind of what he had in mind. Um, and so this, this, this thread that we're, we're, we're walking through, we've, we found ourselves now, we're, uh, I don't even know what week we're in anymore, but it's, we started in January, on January 1, and uh, we'll, we'll wrap this thing up somewhere in the neighborhood of um, beginning of November to mid-November sometime. And we'll have hopefully uh, been responsible with the text, responsible with the scriptures to cover uh, uh, enough of it, but also to show Jesus in every single moment. Because our normal practice, our normal uh, routines, and our, our diet of scripture uh, here at Sulphur Community is, is uh, very much uh, line by line, verse by verse, walking through books of the Bible. Uh, and so this one's been a little bit different for us because we've picked up moments throughout scripture from the beginning to the end. And so, um, but it's been good for us, I think. And if um, if you want to go beyond a Sunday morning sermon, a Sunday morning message, um, some of our, our teaching team has uh, compiled uh, um, guides that, that are to be used every week, so it kind of goes along with the text for that week, and uh, you can use it as family worship guides in your homes, you can use it in your small groups, uh, it comes with uh, verses of scripture to read, um, discussion questions, and just ways to pray. Uh, and so you can always go every week to our website and get that information out of our resources section of our website um, if you want to, uh, if you, like I said, if you want to go a little bit deeper. So this morning we're going to be looking at a couple of parables uh, that Jesus taught. And uh, maybe just to kind of give you a glimpse into the future, this is one of the ones that we have on the shelf, a series that we have on the shelf that we want to eventually get to. And that's walking through the uh, parables of Jesus um, and so we may get there next year or, or maybe in the future if the Lord allows, but that's, uh, t- today we're actually going to be looking at two of them. And a parable, uh, the way Scripture just d- describes these, these stories, that's what it is. It's just a simple story, uh, and it's meant to illustrate 
a, a deeply profound reality, and that's Jesus' main teaching tool that he will go to um, to, to kind of to, to convey a, a, a deep truth, a deep reality. And so throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus used parables all the time. Um, this was his, his uh, mode for teaching. And in fact, Matthew 13, kind of the section we're going to be in this morning, it's a, it's a whole season of Jesus' ministry where, he's, uh, where he said virtually nothing without using a parable to go along with it. Uh, so he's really kind of tapped into this style of teaching for us uh, in this section. And, and you get to this point where his disciples, they would even ask him at one point uh, in the Gospels, in, in, in our chapter specifically, in verse 10 of uh, chapter 13, the disciples would say, uh, uh, they would come to him and say, why do you speak to them in parables? So after he gets done teaching um, this crowd of people in a parable, they kind of draw away and everyone's kind of confused and no one really gets what Jesus is trying to say. And so they just kind of go and say, hey, look, we don't know if we kind of, we don't know if we go with this teaching style that you, this method of teaching that you have. I don't know if it's working or not. Like, we don't get it. I don't think they get it. Maybe you need to kind of contextualize a little bit more so that people understand. So they ask, like, why are you teaching in parables? It was almost like a frustration that they had. And when they draw away from this crowd, this was kind of the, the those that were with Jesus, they had this confusion, and that was, uh, that was the question that they began to ask him. And the answer to the question is, it's, it's kind of for us to kind of hear today, and, 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 and before we move into the actual parables that Jesus taught, his response to this question is something that I think we all need to kind of hear, right? And so Matthew chapter 13, verse 11, this is Jesus' answer to them when they ask why he keeps teaching this way. And he says, to you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given and he will have an abundance, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. So that's how Jesus unpacks the answer. That's how he answers their question for them. Um, and he's basically saying, okay, here's why I'm teaching in parables. There's kind of, there's like two groups of people, right? There's two groups of people, and there's, there's this one group who, they get the secrets to the kingdom. And then there's this other group of people who only get parables. That's, that's kind of how this is separated. He's basically saying, I'm going to preach, I'm going to use parables, and when I'm done, there's going to be left two groups of people out of this teaching that I'm going to do, this style of teaching that I'm going to do. It's going to be those who get it, those who don't. And that's why I'm doing it. That was his answer. And it's a pretty serious situation when you think about it, like, well, like, what crowd do I fall into? Like, when I read Jesus' parables, when you read Jesus' parables, what crowd do you fall into? Do you fall into the crowd that's just left with a parable? Or do you fall into the crowd that actually get the secrets to the kingdom like he's talking about? That should make us ask that question, what group do I fall into? And so what determines what group you fall into? What, what's the deciding factor? And you'd like to think, that the answer is, well, it's the one who gets the parable. It's the one who understands what he's trying to say, right? But you'd be, you'd be mistaken with that response because at this point, when Jesus is having a conversation, no one gets it. The disciples don't get it. The, people who, the, the crowds didn't get it. And so you, to say that, well, if you get it, if you understand it, then, then that determines what crowd you're in. 
So what determines which group you're in is really your reaction to the parable. That's what determines what group you're going to fall into. Jesus is talking about these two different groups. How do you react to the parable? How do you respond when you hear Jesus teach in this weird way that you don't understand? And that's how Jesus is laying it out. It's like it's, it's all in the way you respond. There's, there's a certain group that when they hear the parable, they kind of press in a little bit closer to Jesus. So Jesus, what are you doing? Like, why are you teaching that way? What are you trying to say? And then there's this other group who's really not amused at all, who's not entertained by Jesus' stories and his style of preaching. And so what do they do? They leave. You see, Jesus was teaching in parables, and at the end of his teaching time, there were only just a few people there. The crowds, have, they've gone away because they, they're frustrated, they don't understand, and Jesus is kind of, I don't even like his style of teaching, so I'm going to find a preacher who preaches my kind of preaching, right? That's, that's kind of what we had there. And what's brilliant about Jesus in his use of parables is he's using this as a means of sifting, of separating the wheat from the chaff. So he, he throws a parable out there, he grabs a handful of wheat and chaff, and he just starts sifting, and he says, this is what i got now. I've taught with parables, this is what I've got now. And so to you, you will get the secrets to the kingdom. The rest, they'll stay in their confusion in parables. And this kind of teaching shows you what's in your heart. That's why Jesus is doing this. He's, he's showing you what's in your heart. Either you want him, or you don't want him. That's what he's trying to draw out of you. Either you're going to press in a little closer and try to understand me, or you're going to check out. That's why he's teaching this way. So for those of us who are going to press in, those of us who are going to draw a little bit closer, you're going to, you're going to get the secret of the kingdom because Jesus says he's going to give it to you. And if the parable's frustrating, you really don't know what they mean or what kind of, how they're relevant to you, and you just kind of check out, but Jesus says you're just going to be left in your confusion. And so for, for today, what I hope as we read the parable is that you would kind of press in a little bit, that you wouldn't just kind of check out because Jesus is telling us there's a reason why he's teaching in these parables and it's to do that very thing. So I want us all to press in. Uh, so we're going to be in Matthew chapter 13. Uh, we're going to read a couple of verses there uh, starting in verse 44. And let me set up the scene for you. Jesus has been traveling throughout the region of Galilee, he's been teaching, he's been preaching, he's been performing miracles and healings and casting out demons. And we even saw last week where he took a few loaves and a few fish and he fed a few thousand people with that. So he's, he's really kind of building this platform, so to speak, not intentionally, but just the, the signs and the wonders that people are seeing uh, are, are drawing a crowd to him. And so couched inside all of these signs and couched in these miracles is the call for every single person within earshot of his voice to turn and to repent from their sin because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's his message. He performs miracles, signs, and wonders, not for the sake of miracles, signs, and wonders, but that you might see and believe and turn and repent from your sin and embrace and receive the kingdom of heaven. And because he's a spectacle, these large crowds of both religious and irreligious people are following him everywhere. And in our passage today, Jesus says, and he says primarily to his disciples, but really whoever's within an earshot of him, he's speaking to when he says these words, starting in verse 40, 44, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. 
Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Two short parables, one radical idea, one radical theme that he's trying to communicate in these. In this first parable, we have this man who's out digging in a field, digging a hole out in the middle of nowhere. This field obviously does not belong to him because later on he would have, actually have to go purchase it so he could be an employee, he could be a family member, he could be a family friend. We don't really know. All we do know is that he's in this field and he's just digging away and he comes across a treasure. That's how Jesus lays it out for us. And for Jesus' audience, who he's teaching, who he's talking to, this is not too far-fetched. This is really not like, wow, like, okay, just out in the middle of nowhere, Jesus, this is really like far-fetched idea. It's really not because there were no banks in this time. There were no safe deposit boxes. Uh, and so burying valuables in discreet locations was not an uncommon thing to do. Um, so if you had a huge pile of money or possessions that, you, that were of some great value that you wanted to keep safe... What would you do with it? You would bury it. That's what you would do. And, and if your town was being attacked, a lot like what was happening to Israel in, in those days, um, you would run out away from your property. You would bury it somewhere in a discreet location so that the, the, the incoming enemy doesn't uh, take that from you. Um, and what was happening a lot of times is that people would end up dying um, in the attack or being carried off into exile or carried off into slavery or whatever. And so no one ever knew about a treasure hanging out in the field. So that was not uncommon that Jesus would say this, that Jesus would use this as an illustration to set up his story. And the point is, many people in Jesus' day lived with this excitement of finding this old buried treasure. We kind of do it today as well, but here also. And so when he tells this story, when he kind of opens it up this way, everybody kind of leans in. Everybody kind of wants to hear Jesus. What is he going to, where is he going to take this story? What is he going to do with it? And the lucky guy in our passage just so happens to stumble onto such a treasure by complete accident. That's important for you to know. That's important for me to know that he stumbled onto this treasure by accident. He wasn't looking for treasure. He stumbles on it anyway, and I can imagine him opening this treasure. I can imagine him carefully counting everything and, and looking at it and examining all the contents. And the text then implies that he's just overjoyed by this discovery. Like he is just like, it's probably more than anything he's ever seen before. It's more, more, of more value than anything that he's ever had before. Something that he wasn't even searching for. Something he never knew existed he is now found. And in a moment, everything has changed for him. In one moment, everything has changed for this guy. His passions, his priorities, his dreams, his desires, everything is forever changed. What he has found, he cannot unfind. And what he does next is what we would call radical. What us in 21st century Western civilization would call radical. He repacks all the treasure back into its container. He puts it back into the ground. Remember, it's not his, so he can't just take it, take it away. It doesn't belong to him. And don't miss this. In his joy, he runs back to his house, starts emptying out his house, putting everything on the front yard, 
putting TV, couches, dresser, bed, gaming consoles, you name it, dishes, clothes, all on the front lawn. And he gets two for sale signs and he puts one in front of the pile and he puts one on the house. Can you imagine what his family and friends must be thinking at this point? Can you imagine what they're processing in their minds as they see their friend or their neighbor doing such a thing? But in his joy, he sells it all. In his joy, he sells it all. And Jesus is going to go ahead and just reinforce this same idea with a parable very, very similar. And this time it's a merchant who is actively searching. This guy's kind of like a treasure hunter almost. So he's, he's probably a little bit wealthy. He's probably got some, some wealth about him. He's probably got some possessions that are of some value. And, and, and he's looking for, no, notice the plural, fine pearls. He's just looking wherever, into a pile of whatever, looking for whatever. He's not just looking for one particular pearl. He's just searching. He's just digging around. He doesn't know really what he's looking for, but he's just out searching. But he knows that when he finds what he's looking for, he'll have found it. He knows that. He knows when I see it, I'll know that's the one. And he does. He finds the one. He finds the pearl of great value is how scripture talks about it. And in a moment, his life is changed. His passions, his priorities, his dreams, his desires, everything is forever changed. What he has found, he cannot unfind. And what he does next is equally radical. And imagine that conversation between him and his neighbor. His neighbor's walking over, leans on the fence, and this guy's dragging stuff out of his house, putting it up for sale. He's got a for sale sign on his house. All of it, the car, the boat, the kid's trampoline, it's all for sale. Neighbor, what are you doing, man? And he said, I'm going to buy a pearl. Dude, you're going to buy it. You're going to sell everything you have, and you're going to buy a pearl? Yep, I'm buying a pearl. And so imagine the crowds now. Jesus is telling this story. He's told two of them just like this. Imagine what the crowd is doing. Imagine what the listeners, how they're responding. To the ones who were listening with their ears, Jesus' words were foolish. This is utter foolishness, Jesus, what you're saying. Who would ever trade all of their possessions for one pearl, one single pearl? Who would do that? Would anybody in this room do that? If you had one little pearl, would you sell everything you had? Home, car, boat, TVs, couches, possessions, all of it. Would you give it all away for that pearl? It's ridiculous, isn't it? Sounds ridiculous. And yet there were people in that crowd among the disciples who were hearing Jesus with their hearts. Not with their ears, but with their, with their hearts. And they knew that these words were truth. And they knew that these words were life. Like that was life-giving. And a famous quote that I, I always go back to when I think about how Jesus teaches generosity and making the main thing the main thing was a missionary martyr to the Hurani people group of Ecuador, Jim Elliott, when he says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. It's a lot of words and a lot of jargon, but when you get it, you get it. And it's nothing foolish about it at all. 
in two short parables, Jesus is communicating this one radical idea, like the treasure and like the pearl. The kingdom of heaven is so glorious. The kingdom of heaven is so satisfying. It is so wonderful that it is worth losing everything for. It is worth giving all of it away. That's how good it is. This is the radical truth that's at the heart of our passage today. That's what's, that's what's in the center of it all. And, and to tangibly experience this, for us as, as believers, for ourselves, to tangibly, tangibly experience this truth is the very essence of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So I want to go back and say, we like to call this radical. But biblically, this is just normal Christianity. It's normal Christianity. So here's the problem. Very few, listen to me when I say this, because I know I'm talking to a room full of them. Very few professing Christians actually experience this truth that the kingdom of heaven is so glorious that it's worth losing all of your possessions for. Very few Christians buy into that idea. Because we're too occupied building our own counterfeit kingdoms. We're too occupied being general contractors of our own kingdoms. We're too busy building our castles and our moats and our walls and our gates and our security systems and our gated communities. We're too busy with all of that. So God give us not only ears to hear and eyes to see, but hearts that are reshaped with these radical ideas of Jesus. That's what we need. So what is this kingdom of heaven that Jesus keeps talking about? He's saying, like, the kingdom of heaven is way better than anything you could ever possess, ever, on the face of the earth, earth, ever. And when you repent and turn from your sin, that's what you get. You get that. And Scripture uses the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God uh, synonymously. They're the same thing. In Matthew 19, Jesus is talking to this rich young ruler uh, about the kingdom of God, and he uses these phrases interchangeably. And in a broad sense, the kingdom of heaven includes all that is in the universe. Everything that exists, everything that you could possibly see, touch, hear, smell, taste, it, everything is under the rule of the kingdom of heaven. Psalm 103, 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. God is the most sovereign. He is the most high. He is the king of all kings. In a broad sense, the kingdom of heaven includes everything in the universe. And this was especially true before the fall of humanity. And after the rebellion of Adam and Eve, a new kingdom was forged, so to speak. This, this new kingdom that was a fallen kingdom, that was a broken one, it was an earthly kingdom, a kingdom of man. And it's in this sense that the kingdom of heaven no longer includes all that's in the universe. Because all of humanity has sinned. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have gone our own way. And because of this, we have made ourselves exiles of this kingdom of heaven. That we have, we have made the choice to become exiles of this kingdom of heaven that Jesus talks about so much. By our own will, by our own desires, we have been banned from the kingdom of heaven and now belong to this fallen kingdom of man. And, and, and 
we've even helped to create this kingdom of man, this broken thing, this broken system. Born as a baby, Jesus comes into this kingdom. Thanks be to God that our story doesn't end with this broken kingdom, with this, with this mess. Instead of destroying it, instead of bringing us down to our little rebellious states, God took up residence in our little kingdom. He moved into the neighborhood as this young baby born to a young girl named Mary. God willingly placed himself in our exile. He willingly came to this place. And every other religion on the planet, every other religion on the planet, and every other so-called God demands that you pick yourself up, that you ascend to him. But only Christianity speaks of this God who has come down who has descended to save humanity. This is the unique story that Jesus comes as a new Adam. Scripture would, would, would describe him as, as the new firstborn who would come to reunite the kingdom of heaven with creation the way it was always intended to be. That he came to fix that. And unlike the first Adam, and unlike you, and unlike me, Jesus perfectly obeyed his father's desires. He perfectly submitted to the Father's kingship over the kingdom. But he did even more than that. In order to reclaim our fallen world for the kingdom of heaven, Jesus took on our sin. He took on our disobedience that severed us from this kingdom, that, that separated us from this kingdom of heaven, and he took it on himself. He put it on himself for our sake he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. He became as a chief rebel among men. He, he became all of our murder. He became all of our materialism. He became all of our lust. He became all of our gossip. He became all of our gluttony. He became all of our sin and he killed it in himself, in his own body, on the cross. And recalling the fact, recalling the fact that he is the chief sovereign, that he is in charge, he's the man over all of nature, he didn't stay dead. While he carried all of our sin and brokenness to the cross on himself and killed it there along with himself, he did not stay dead. He holds the keys to life and to death. Not sin, not Satan. Not anyone, not anything, but God himself holds the keys to life and to death. And right now, the resurrected Son of God is calling men, women, and children to turn from their sin. To repent by his sacrifice, come into the kingdom of heaven by faith. Believe on him, trusting that this was enough to pay the penalty for your rebellion, for my rebellion. That Christ has accomplished that. That trusting that his resurrected life is, is proof that the citizens of the kingdom of heaven will live forever, for eternity. The kingdom of heaven is Jesus' rule over the hearts of those who trust in his saving work and those who submit to God's authority over their lives. The kingdom of heaven is good. The kingdom of heaven, it's abundant. It is everlasting life that God intended us to have since the day he created everything, since the beginning, and now through Christ is being reinstated when you receive him. Free of sin, free of death, free of disease, free of decay, 
It is beyond what any mind can fathom, what any mind can conceive. And if that sounds too good to be true, it shouldn't. It shouldn't. It's, it's what we were originally made for. This is, this, is how, this is what's right in the world. If it sounds too good to be true, it's because we've married ourselves to all other complicated things and all other kingdoms and all other gods to where that's not even possible. This doesn't even sound right anymore. So it shouldn't sound too good to be true. So this means then that, that the things that we're working so hard to achieve here on earth, whether that's peace or, or power or pleasure, all of those things can be infinitely yours in Christ Jesus. The true peace that you're working so hard for right now, that we're working so hard for right now, whether that be in your 401ks, whether that be in your jobs, whether that be in your home security systems, in your treasures, this kind of peace is infinitely yours in Jesus. The true pleasure that you are working so hard for, that you're looking everywhere to find, whether it's pornography, whether it's sex, overindulgence of food and drink, possessions, treasures, are infinitely yours in Christ Jesus. That pleasure that you're searching for can only be fully satisfied in Christ. The power that we're all grabbing for, that all of us have a tendency to grab for, working so hard to acquire, whether that be in our relationships, whether that be in our social status, whether it be mentally and physically fit, whatever it is for you, that power that you're searching for, that, that gives you strength, that you think is going to sustain you for everlasting life, only comes and infinitely is found in Christ Jesus. You think you got peace in your savings account, that's counterfeit. One small swing of the stock market and that's all gone. The, the pleasure that you're trying to satisfy yourself with right now in your abundance of your possessions, it's all counterfeit. They cannot hold a candle to what Christ wants to give you. The power that you think that you have in your social status, where you belong, what circle of friends you belong to, what job you have, what fine-tuned health program you're on, whatever, it's counterfeit power. It's no power at all compared to what Jesus offers you. And this is how the Apostle Paul was able to encourage the church at Philippi when he said, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count all things as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Who among us can say that? Who in this room who's watching online, who can say that, that I give it all away because Christ is more? I don't, I don't care about any of it because Christ is more. Paul knows that any bits, any little small parts of his kingdom that he tries to hold on to will only dilute and water down and spoil the kingdom that Jesus wants to give him. He believes what Jesus said whenever Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And we think we can juggle our material desires by being slightly generous on the side. That's how we roll. I'll give a little bit here, and I'm going to juggle all of the possessions and treasures that I have here. But Jesus says it's impossible to sustain that. 
You can't carry that forever. You cannot serve God in money. You cannot serve God in stuff. You cannot serve God in possessions. One will always try to crucify the other. Always. And it will only kill you to keep trying to balance that. It will only kill you. So we need to feel the weight of trying to balance these two kingdoms simultaneously because that's really, as, as modern-day Christians, I feel like that's what we try to do. Like we believe that the kingdom of heaven is here and that Jesus offers that, but I'm not sure we believe what all comes with that because that's what Jesus is trying to convince us of right now. That everything that you think you're reaching for to satisfy you is found here, infinitely here. All you have to do is just walk away from that and receive this. Two kingdoms will not work in harmony with one another. It will not. And Jesus says it's all or nothing. It's all or nothing. And he's put his life on the line to rescue us from these little counterfeit kingdoms that we've built. Like he put his blood on the line for that. And he's promised us that that life in the kingdom of heaven, it's the most abundant, it's the most satisfying, it is the most wonderful life possible. And it's not too good to be true. This is why these men and these parables that we see didn't really even see, see sacrifice at all, did they? Like we kind of think, well, I got to sacrifice all my things to have this. They didn't even see it all. In their joy, in their joy, they gave up everything on earth and got the kingdom, and it was a happy trade-off for them. And on that, we would take God up on this promise of true and abundant and everlasting life, but it but it's going to look different than what you might expect. And this is kind of the warning. For all Christians, all believers everywhere, this is kind of the warning. That the trade-off that you're going for may not necessarily end up in a 6,000 square foot home in a gated community with security systems and private parks for your kids. It may not end up that way. It's probably not going to end up that way. And so I don't want to tell you, if you, man, you get Jesus, you give your life to Jesus, you get all this other stuff with it. You're probably going to lose all of that stuff that you have. And here's the deal. What Jesus is trying to say is, that's okay. That's okay. It didn't look like this for the Apostle Paul. It didn't look like this for Jim Elliott. He was speared to death when he was trying to preach the gospel to this people group. In their joy, they exchanged their counterfeit kingdoms, the Apostle Paul and Jim Elliot and so many others. They exchanged these counterfeit kingdoms of temporal success for this eternal kingdom of heaven that we find in Christ. So who's next? Who's our next Jim Elliot? Will God call that person from this room? Will God call this person who's watching online right now? Who's going to be the next one to, to forsake everything they have and go and carry the gospel to the, to the uttermost parts of the world where people groups all over have yet to hear the name of Jesus preached because that's the better way to go. That, that's where infinite joy is found there. When you think about this for yourself, it should freak you out a little bit, right? Like this is kind of normal Christianity is what Jesus is trying to tell us. This is kind of normal. Our citizenship in the kingdom of heaven will immediately make us aliens to the kingdom of man. It will immediately separate us and, se- and segregate. We're not naturally going to fit in with our co-workers who are far from God. 
We're, we're, not, we're, we're not naturally going to fit in with people on our campus who are far from God, and, and we shouldn't. We shouldn't. Citizenship in the kingdom of heaven immediately makes us sojourners. And this is just not truth for us to like hear today and ponder on. Like this is, this is what Christ calls us to walk in. He calls us to, to obey and to say yes to. And I want to, I want to close because here's the deal. Like this, just hearing that, like that's overwhelming. That's it's countercultural, and it kind of freaks me out that Jesus would even say things like that. But I want to read this scripture over you, and then we're going to close uh, with prayer. In Luke, Jesus is saying all kinds of things. You can imagine the fear and the, uh, and the anxiety and the worry and the what-ifs all coming up as he's teaching. And he kind of just bookends it with this truth right here in chapter 12, verse 32. He says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. God wants to do that. This is God's goodness in your life. Don't be afraid. Don't start thinking about all the things that you, you, like, that's impossible for you to do right now. Jesus says, oh, look, man, God wants to give that. Like, it is his good pleasure. It brings him joy to be able to hand over this wonderful, glorious kingdom. For you to be a part of that, where all of your pleasure is satisfied, where all of the power that you seek is found, like all of this, is found in this kingdom. So don't be afraid. That was Jesus' uh, uh, comments to, to his disciples who were listening then, and that is his comments for us now. That is his encouragement for us now. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So let's pray together. Lord, we come to you the, this morning, and Lord, I know that I've been challenged by this word. I know that I'm just, uh, Father, one of many in a group who... Um, who would consider what this looks like in real life. And Lord, I just pray that we don't let fear overtake um, what you're calling us to. That you do not give us a spirit of fear. But you give us a spirit of power and love and a sound mind. So with those things, Father, we can, we can walk in obedience. And what Christ has accomplished on our behalf, you have already um, done the unthinkable for us. And so these truths that you've promised us, we can believe on those. We don't have to freak out about them. And we see this parable that Jesus is teaching about the kingdom of heaven and what it's like. Father, I'm, I'm afraid that I join many of my brothers and sisters in really not fully believing that this kingdom offers everything that you say it offers. Otherwise, it wouldn't seem like such a sacrifice for me. So, Father, I, I pray now that you would begin to shape my heart in a way that, uh, that looks more like what Jesus is calling me to. Father, I pray that over my brothers and sisters who are uh, in the room this morning, that, uh, that you would do the same in their lives. All along the way, every time you ask us to do hard things, there are two things, Father, that, uh, that you have shown me, and I pray that you show this, this room, is that you're never going to ask us to do anything that you wouldn't do yourself, and number two, you've always encouraged us not to be afraid. And so let those two things put wind in our sails 
through the power of your Holy Spirit. May we walk in obedience. May we uh, walk in the truth that we see in Scripture here. Even though it's countercultural to our, our normal day-to-day, Father, would you begin to show us ways that we can live in radical ways for the kingdom of God? We love you, Jesus, and all of these things, these prayers, the understanding of your word, all of these cannot be accomplished without what you've done for us on the cross. And so we embrace the reality today. This morning we embrace the truth that we are forgiven, that our debt is paid, that we are free, that we've been liberated, and now we belong to this glorious kingdom that we read about. So begin to show us in unique and supernatural ways what all we've been given through this through this life that you've lived, through this death that you've died, through this resurrection that you've accomplished. So we love you. And we ask that you would use us in miraculous and supernatural ways, ways that you would receive glory and that we would be used in kingdom-minded ways. We ask all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.